my name is, I go by Mike Perry. I'm the president of the Army Heritage Center Foundation. So to the beginning, what led you to the military? Parents. Uh, my father was a career army officer, uh, retired in 64. Uh, my mother was a German national, my uh, in a sense, a war bride. Uh, and she had a heritage of, of service to the state in her family, you know, government officials. So she believed it was important to serve uh, if you wanted to call yourself a citizen. Uh, so they, uh, they sort of motivated me to uh, look at the military and then uh, look at the military academy because I went to West Point and graduated in 1974. Wow, West Point. Yep. How did how did that shape you? Uh, it was it was different. I grew up on Long Island, and uh, you know, going home in Long Island in the early 1970s with uh, with short hair uh, was not uh, what most people expected out of a young man. Um, but uh, no, it was a great experience. Uh, uh, four years, uh, great academic programs, uh, great physical programs, and then uh, lessons in leadership. So uh, in, in, I wouldn't say I enjoyed it all the time, uh, but it was a great, uh, great learning experience. And it would have mattered because it, it's where I, I met my wife. So. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and that's been good. So how did you get involved with uh, the foundation? I, I got to take you back. The uh, okay. Army in 19, uh, back when I was a, a, a captain, uh, asked me if I wanted to go to graduate school to study history. So I, I, went, to, uh, I went to Rice University in Texas. I got a master's in history and then was sent up to the military academy where I taught uh, military history and some electives in the military technology evolution. Um, went back out in the field in 92, I got asked to go back to West Point. Uh, I was the battalion commander for the enlisted soldiers that were assigned there. But in that job, I also oversaw the army museum that was at West Point um, and, and, and got me involved. And then when I left the academy, I was assigned to a place called the US Army Military History Institute at the Army War College. Uh, and in 1998, I became the first project officer for the development of the U.S. Army Heritage Education Center. Uh, so I, I did that in its evolution from about 1998 until I retired in 2002. And in 2004, I got a phone call from a retired uh, four-star general officer asking me to come in for an interview. Uh, and typically, when you get asked to come by an interview of someone of that stature, uh, you come in for the interview. <laughs> and and uh, basically in, in January of 2005, I began work with the foundation. So I basically came back to a project I had started to try to continue to grow it. Wow, that's amazing. Uh, can, can you tell me what programs and what the foundation does for the center? Well, one, the center is a federally operated facility. Mm -hmm. Uh, we see, the, the, the board sees, the foundation sees of, as having, uh, in a sense, three key roles. Uh, one, uh, we were tasked in agreements with the Army to build out a lot of the public space. So we have a building program uh, to add to the facility, uh, to build the galleries, to build educational program and, and meeting space. 
Uh, so we've been doing that uh, since uh, we, we were established. Uh, and uh, we've done about $16, $17 million of construction. And the Army just asked us to add another 30,000 square feet uh, to the facility. Well, they didn't ask. They stated a need. There's a, <laughs> there's yeah. a prohibition of the Army asking for support, but they can state a need. Uh, so we do build. Uh, then we, we uh, promote the facility. Um, the Army typically does not buy advertising. Yeah. So we buy, it, buy their advertising in tourist magazines. When they have special events, we go out to regional radio stations, TV stations, purchase ads. I talk on, uh, on uh, videos like this to, to promote the facility. Um, we go out and speak to veterans groups. Uh, for example, I was in Philadelphia last week talking to the uh, American Legion Post 405 at the Union League. So, so we try to find ways of promoting the facility as a free public venue uh, for, for the American public come to. And then lastly, we run enhancement programs. Some of them are, in a sense, direct related to the AHEC. Uh, for example, we run the museum store uh, here, uh, which provides you know, the customers uh, something to take home. When they come here, we have a library and we have stuff for kids, mementos, and that type of materials. Uh, but then we also run teacher workshops where we bring in educators and talk to them about what materials are here that they can use Put together lesson plans. My education program director puts out soldier stories on the website. We have about 25, 30 soldier stories on the website that provide teachers something that they can pull down as a resource. Um, we do oral histories. Uh, now, some of them we do straight oral histories where I or my ed program director sits down and actually conducts the interview. But we also run a program where we sit down high school students with veterans, either in person or we've been doing it by Zoom. And it's a sort of an intergenerational con conversation because the high school students who may know nothing about the conflict that the veteran served in is able to gain an appreciation and the veteran gains an appreciation of the potential of our young people today. So it's, it's, a, 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 it's a good program. The last one we did that, that's very big is we run the National History Day program for the, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. Now, we don't do it for the state. We are the program manager in the state. But we touch about 13,000 kids on an annual basis, 300 plus schools. Uh, our ed program runs the state competition where we bring in pre-COVID days, about 800. Uh, this year, first, first resident class again after two years of uh, we did virtual programs. Uh, we brought in about 450. And then we send 60 to 80 down to the national competition every June in College Park. That's the biggest program we do. We're also now running a summer camp program focused on uh, military training manuals of the 1980s. It's more of an adventure camp. Yeah. Uh, we promise <laughs> to send the kids home tired and dirty. Uh, <laughs> but we run those during the summer. Uh, and then we're going to probably start a leadership academy uh, focused on uh, ninth and 10th graders here sometime later on this summer. So that's sort of the things that we do. So it's, I mean, you guys do a lot, a whole lot more than just the museum. How important is it to get, you know, your message out there to all these communities? Well, the strength of this facility is not its museum. 
This facility grew out of an archives that the Army created back in the 1960s. Colonel George Pappas, the first director, believed that the Army needed to capture its own history or that history could be scattered or lost. So the strength of this facility is the archival collection, which is available to the public. Um, they, uh, they have about 23,000 linear feet of manuscript materials, more than 2 million photographs. The library itself consists of over 300,000 volumes, and we have what we call authority pubs, field manuals, technical manuals, TONEs, general orders, going back to Steuben's Blue Book. The artifacts that come in, in I would say in 99% of the time, have to have provenance back to one of those manuscript or photo collections. Because we just don't, their philosophy on the Army side is not just to bring in artifacts, but to bring in artifacts and manuscript collections that they can mix to tell individual soldier narratives, to build a theme about how our soldiers have contributed to the nation throughout our history. So we are a museum and educational complex and also uh, a, uh, an archives. In fact, uh, the public events that the Army runs, they're going to run one in September uh, and one in October. They call them Army Heritage Days. They're public events really to educate the public about how soldiers have lived and served over the uh, 250 years that our Army has existed. I mean, with each, you know, passing year, uh, you know, veterans are passing away and all that. How important is it to get these stories, you know, out there? It's important that we need to, to one, gather them first. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's why, well, we also facilitate bringing in manuscript and, uh, and library collections for the Army. Because uh, I'm on the road an awful lot, and we bump into people, we start talking, and they say, oh, I didn't know you'd be interested in my grandfather's letters. Uh, so it's important that we capture them. Uh, this location is one great place. Uh, I'm going to talk about, you know, we're Army, so if you're Air Force, you've got the Air Force Historical Research Agency down at Maxwell. Uh, if you're a Marine, you've got the Marine Library and Archives down at Quantico. You can go to the Navy Yard if you're Navy. Um, I haven't figured out where Space Force is going to do it, right. but, but all the services value getting in uh, materials that that allow them to better tell the narrative service. So, but it's important because generations are, are passing. You know, we focused heavily on the World War II generation passing, but recently we were we were told that more than half of the Vietnam veterans have passed away. And and wow. you're a little bit younger than me, for but for me. Vietnam veterans were the old guys when I first went in the army. So it, it, it's, it's sort of striking that uh, if we don't capture them, uh, it'll be hard to tell what they've done in the future. My big concern right now is with the development of websites and digital photography and emails and, and stat phones, where soldiers used to write letters home Right now, they'll call or they'll email, and those materials aren't necessarily preserved. Right. Uh, units at the end of a campaign uh, would quite often publish what I call it a yearbook, but it was a chronicle of what the unit had done during that particular conflict. 
with the development of websites in the 1990s, quite often units would post up on their website what the unit was doing, photographs when they were deployed. Mm -hmm. But when they got back home, the website came down, no one preserved that materials. So I'm gonna say for the, for the soldiers starting to serve in the mid nineties to today, it's gonna to be harder to tell some of their personal stories than it was to tell a Civil War soldier's story. So we have to, that's one of the reasons we're, we're trying to increase the, the rate we can do oral histories to try to capture that. I didn't even think of that because you would think with all the technology nowadays, it'd be easier, but now it's private and all that. So absolutely. Well, the, the, the other problem, one, it's dispersed. Yeah. And two, if I have a website that, that tells, say, my father's narrative or my narrative, and I pass away, I don't think my kids are going to take over my website. And eventually the, you know, the, the, the factors that control, you know, web addresses right. will, will say I've abandoned it and it, it goes away. So that's some of the concern uh, that I have. And I try to encourage uh, young officers when they come through here to think about how they can preserve those stories. Some units during Vietnam published what I thought was really neat. It was scrapbooks for fighting men too busy to keep their own. <laughs> And about every month they would publish like a 10 to 12 page newsletter, hard copy that they would give to the soldiers. Soldiers could either throw them away, put them in their duffel bag or send them home to loved ones. But many of them got preserved. So even though they may have not kept a diary, it was a great way for the units to allow their stories to be told later on. So how important is understanding the history uh, to be ready for the future? Not that history repeats itself, but there are themes uh, that, that you can see, especially within the military. You can look at the role of leadership and that's, that's a constant almost across time. Now, leadership has changed over time from, from leaders uh, actually out front to better management of forces. Uh, you, can, you can look at the role of technology and how technology has changed. And then also look at the process of bringing new technology on. Just because an item has shown up on the shelf doesn't mean that the, the soldiers are going to understand how to use it. Quite often, it takes 10 to 15 to 20 years for a piece of technology to mature to the point where it's truly effective. And if you look at the first helicopter being you know, deployed in Burma in 1945 and what a helicopter can do today, it takes, it takes time for stuff to mature. So you have to understand how uh they do that the war college has a group of historians uh that work over in the strategic studies institute that do what they call slash and burn history uh, every time the army thinks it's running into a new problem they go back and say hey boss it's not a new problem it has new wrinkles in it but here's how the army what processes the army use so looking at old processes and allowing the leadership today and in the future to see how the army met challenges is important. So what motivates you? A um, couple things. Uh, one, um, the service and sacrifice of our service members and their families. Right. Quite often the family is put up with more uh, than does the, the, the service member. Quite often when we're serving, we're doing it because we want to. Uh, we're dragging our families around because they love us. Uh, but sometimes it's pretty hard on, on both the spouse and the kids. 
And then if you walk out in the hallway today, you see uh, families coming here uh, and, and you can get engaged with them. Where you come from, why are you here? Did you serve? Finding out that maybe they didn't, but their dad did, and they're trying to figure out a little bit more about what their dad, or today I have to say, their mom. Uh, so engaging with the public is, is great. So those two things uh, motivate me. And then, you know, it's just the desire to sort of get this last building up. You know, I've, I've been working this project now for 20 some odd years, and I'd like to see that last building, uh, which you can see behind me. Yes. Yeah. Slide over there a little <laughs> bit. That's sort of the, <clears throat> the last phase that we're trying to put up, uh, which will add additional gallery space and educational program space. So, uh, you know, that, that motivates me. So that, that's a good segue to my next question is where do you want to see your foundation, the foundation in the next five years? Uh, a couple things. One, I would like to see the building come up. Right. Uh, you know, that, uh, I hate to say, uh, we committed to the Army to do this. We also committed to the community because the property that we're on was donated by the county for us to build this facility. So that's, uh, that's, that's one thing. Uh, and then what we want to do is, is build sufficient legacy funding so that we can sustain programs such as the oral history program right. so that we can uh, not protect, but so we can provide the army what we call margin of excellence support. Uh, for example, we have a world-class conservation facility here on site, but we, it could be, it's got two people working in it. We could easily have a half a dozen people working in there based upon the spite, the space and the and the uh, the capability that their laboratories have. So trying to, to build that. Uh, also enhancing our educational programs uh, so that we can do greater outreach. I've already required my ed program director when he does teacher workshops to both do some physically on site, but then also on Zoom so we can build a national audience for that. Uh, so what we want to do is continue to enhance the capabilities. And then the Army has asked us to facilitate uh, digitization of the manuscript collection. Right now, they are well-funded, I should say, well-funded for the, to digitize almost the entire manuscript collection. But what they don't have in their funding right now is to digitize the photograph collection or some of the audiovisual materials that they have. So they've asked us if we could, over time, build the capacity to fund those things that they can't get funded. Uh, for example, we just received a grant from one, one gentleman to photograph, to digitize about 900 US horse cavalry. Yeah. When, I, when I say horse cavalry, I mean horse cavalry. If it has a, a Jeep or a tank in it, nope, that's not horse cavalry. Uh, he's a horse cavalry uh, uh, fanatic. I wouldn't say a fanatic. He's an advocate of the history of those soldiers. Uh, and he would like to see those photographs made publicly available online. Uh, so we're doing that. And then uh, we are adding some technical expertise this year. Uh, we've offered a grant that they can hire a, a part-timer uh, to work in the conservation facility. So how can people uh, reach out to you? One, we have a website, uh, www.armyheritage.org. Uh, they can join our Facebook page. Uh, which we have. We have a LinkedIn page, uh, Army Heritage Center Foundation, uh, so they can connect with that. We would ask if they're up driving up and down the East Coast on, on eight, US 81, 
that they stop by. Uh, and then uh, if they are willing uh, in a, a paid announcement, uh, if they could uh, continue to contribute uh, their dollars to so we can sustain and grow uh, the capacity of the Heritage Center.